If you are new this morning, uh, we began a new sermon series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew a couple weeks ago. And so we are uh, looking at the key events, these pivotal events in the life of Jesus. And we're going to be doing that leading up uh, to the end of March, which is Easter. And uh, so uh, we began a couple weeks ago, and this morning we're in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, if you would please turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you'll mark that, we will begin there uh, here shortly. Now, I want to make a comment. I don't know if this will surprise you or not, uh, given that I'm a pastor. It may or may not. I'm not sure. Uh, But one of the things that I've had to wrestle with in my own life is this question of, why do I believe the Bible? Why do I believe it's trustworthy? Why do I believe it's God's word? See, a little bit of my story is this. I've grown up in church my entire life. I mean, since a little baby, my dad's a pastor, my grandfather's a pastor. And so I, I kind of take a step back and I ask, why do I believe all this stuff? I mean, is it just my upbringing? Is there something more to it? But then on top of that, you know, there are some very <clears throat> hard and difficult parts in the Bible. There are some tough passages. There are commands as believers that really push against the culture narrative. It's, it's difficult to be a believer. We're, we're different at times. We're, we're kind of unique and, and sometimes thought of as, as odd. And so I wrestle with this. Why trust the Bible? Why do what it says? Is it really God's word? And I imagine you've had similar thoughts and similar questions in your own life. And maybe you would approach it from the angle that I, I do, that, that you grew up in church. You've just been surrounded by it your whole life. But maybe for you, you didn't grow up in church. Jesus, all this stuff was was kind of foreign. You're very skeptical. Or maybe it wasn't you were all that skeptical. You just didn't really care. Just wasn't a factor in your life. Now, when it comes to the trustworthiness of the Bible, that it really is God's word, there are many different things that we could look at. We could think of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, how what he said and who he is, he, he really did rise from the dead. And this gives us confidence in God's word. And so again, there's many different ways that we could treat this. We could actually turn it into a whole sermon series. And that's not my point this morning. But one of the things that I found so helpful is to think of the unified storyline of the Bible and how it all fits together. I want to share a couple things that have helped me as I wrestle with this question, if you'll look at the screen. First of all, the Bible was written over a period of around 1,500 years. And so the last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation, was written around A.D. 90. And so if you back up from there, around 1,500, 1,400 B.C., this is when the Bibles begin to be written and collected and gathered together. Also on top of that, the Bible has around 40 uh, different authors It contains three different languages, original languages. Uh, The Old Testament basically is Hebrew. The New Testament is Greek. And then there's some Aramaic that shows up in some different areas. And then not only that, the Bible is technically not one book, but a collection of 66 books. And so when I kind of take a step back and I look at all these different factors, how long the Bible was written, this 1,500-year period, These different authors, 40 of them, separated by hundreds of years, some thousand years or so. And they didn't know each other, most of them. But yet, it all fits together. There's this unified storyline. There's this continuity to the Bible. And so I think about that, and I I say, what are the odds 
that that could actually happen. And so I, I, I take confidence that God is directing all this to reveal who he is and this storyline of salvation, this, this storyline of, of who Christ is, his son that will come and save us from our sin. But another factor tied to this unified storyline that we find in the Bible is all the cross-references that are contained in our Bible. Now, you may have noticed this if you've been doing the reading plan as we read one chapter a day in Matthew. And so you, you'll read a, a chapter or a verse and you'll notice all these little kind of letters above the verse. And then you maybe look to the side or below in your Bible and it has all these different references. What is so amazing and fascinating is these, these authors, particularly in the New Testament, they're not just making it up. Almost every phrase, they're pointing back to something from the Old Testament. It may be a direct reference or a direct quote, or it may be some type of allusion, but they're constantly pulling from the Old Testament. So I want to show you one more uh, graph, if you will, if you look at the uh, screen here. So what this is, I'll let the guys that put this together explain it a little bit, all right? The bar graph that runs along the bottom represents all the chapters in the Bible. Books alternate in color between the white and light gray. The length of each bar denotes the number of verses in the chapter. Each of the 63,779 cross-references found in the Bible is depicted by a single arc. The colors correspond to the distance between the two chapters, creating a rainbow-like effect. And you could just see one book after another pointing back to each other. And if we were to narrow down to this gospel of Matthew, to just drill down and take this narrow view, we would see one after another of Matthew connecting what happens in the Old Testament to Christ. Now, I bring this up, one, I hope it gives you confidence. And maybe you've been struggling, why trust the Bible? Is it really God's word? And I hope this gives you some confidence today. But I also bring this up because in our passage this morning, we find three references that Matthew makes where he is laying the foundation of who Christ is. See, when we get to Matthew chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 4, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And what Matthew is trying to do in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is lay this foundation of who Jesus is. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus comes from the right genealogy. He is the Messiah. As we continue in chapter 1, he says that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then when we get to chapter 2, he continues to build this foundation of who Christ is. But I will warn you, Matthew these references that he gives, these allusions that he gives to the Old Testament, what we'll be looking at, they don't always come in this kind of nice, neat package. I mean, sometimes he gives a direct quote and it's very easy to see the point he's trying to make, but other times we really have to dig and kind of really learn and grow to understand what he is pointing to. But as we do that hard work, Again, we see how fascinating it is, all these connections that he, he makes. And really, we see the beauty and the depth of God's plan, of the storyline, and of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And so if you have Matthew chapter 2, if you would look at verse 13. Now, what we're going to do and what Matthew does is he really gives us three scenes from the early life of Jesus. When I say early life, I mean very early life. This is when Jesus is an infant, maybe a toddler, 
And so Matthew, he gives us these three scenes, then he connects it with the Old Testament, and we're going to go through that and see what Matthew is trying to tell us this morning. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And this is a reference to the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. So we begin in verse 13, and Matthew says, when they had gone. So who is the they? This is the wise men, the magi. This is the the birth narrative of Jesus. And so we often, when we think of that nativity scene, we, we think of the three wise men. Now, the reason that we think this way is because they brought three gifts to Jesus. But more than likely, there were many wise men. These were astrologers from this area of Persia, modern-day Iran, and and they had seen some type of star in the sky. They they no doubt had some of the Old Testament scripture, and so they see this star, and they head to Bethlehem. And when they show up, and they would have been a large caravan of people, a a lot of people in this group that went to Bethlehem. And when they show up, the the city is really disturbed. You know, why are all these foreigners here? They've traveled hundreds of miles. Why are they here? Why have they shown up? But also the city is disturbed by what they ask. They say, we've seen this star. And then they say, where is this one born king of the Jews? Now, Herod, to understand the, the birth narrative of Jesus, we need to understand who this person Herod was. And Herod was known as Herod the Great. And he was a brilliant guy. He was very driven. He did all sorts of building projects. Uh, This is why he was called Herod the Great. But also he had a massive ego. He was paranoid and he was very wicked and evil. Let me just share a few disturbing facts from his life. Uh, Herod had 10 wives, so that's not great. But one of the 10 wives was his favorite. And he loved her so much that he had her killed because she upset him, all right? But not only that, constantly paranoid that some family member would take his throne. So he had uncles of his killed, cousins killed. He even had three of his own sons killed. And then one more just to show how crazy he was. He commanded at his death, and he he knew at his death the Jewish people, they hated him. They wanted him gone. And so at his death, there would be this rejoicing all over the place. And so he knew this. But he also wanted there to be weeping and crying at his death. And so his command is that when he would die, whenever that would be, is that his soldiers were to go around and kill some of the Jewish leaders. And then there would be crying and weeping in the area. Not for him, but for these Jewish leaders that were killed. But he didn't care. He wanted there to be mourning at his death. Thankfully, this wasn't carried out. But this gives you a picture of just how evil and paranoid he was. And so you can imagine that Herod, he doesn't like hearing about this child, this one born king of the Jews. And so he is seeking to find Jesus and have him killed. 
But Joseph is warned in a dream to get out of town. And so Joseph, he, he acts quickly and he takes Jesus and Mary and they go to Egypt. And what Matthew does is he takes this scene from the early life of Jesus and he connects it to this Old Testament book of Hosea, where he said in chapter 11, out of Egypt, I called my son. But when you go to Hosea chapter 11, you'll notice this isn't referring to Jesus, at least not directly, but instead to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was often called God's son, God's firstborn son. So we need to ask, what is Matthew doing? What Matthew is doing here is what we call pattern fulfillment. Okay, pattern fulfillment. And so what Matthew does, he takes this pattern or he takes this parallel from Jesus' life and the history of Israel, and he's comparing them. And so what we read in the beginning books of the Bible in Genesis and in Exodus is that the people of Egypt, and really at this time, they're just a family, about 70 people or so, but the Lord blesses them and they continue to grow. And now there's millions of them, but this scares Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so they enslave them. They, They put them in bondage. But after 400 years, the Lord hears their prayers and their cries, and he sends a deliverer. He sends Moses. And after this series of plagues, the people are delivered. And on their way out, Pharaoh, he he changes his mind, and he now wants to attack them. And so as the people are going out, they have a problem. They have the army on one side. They have the Red Sea on the other. And the Lord miraculously opens the Red Sea. They walk through it. As they continue on in their journey, they go to the wilderness for this time of testing. Will they trust God? He's testing them during this time. And then they get to this mountain and Moses goes up on the mountain and then he comes back down and he gives them what we call the 10 commandments for how this people saved by grace, delivered from Egypt are to live. Now here's the pattern that Matthew was showing us, particularly in chapters two to five, he says that Jesus, he comes out of Egypt. We get to chapter three, Jesus is baptized. He goes through waters just like the Israelites did. And then in chapter four, Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness. And then when we get to chapter five, Jesus goes up on a mountainside. He's the greater Moses, and he gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's explaining how believers, Christians are to live. And so you see the pattern, right? That as the nation went out of Egypt, so does Jesus. As they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus goes through the waters of his baptism. As they are tested, so is Jesus. And as the people receive the Ten Commandments, so Christ is giving the Sermon on the Mount this way to live, what's called sometimes the law or the love of Christ, these these rules of how to live. And so this is the pattern that we see between the nation of Israel and Jesus. And the point that Matthew is trying to make, what he wants us to see is that Christ is going to deliver us. That Jesus is the greater Moses. He is a greater deliverer. That Jesus is the true Israel. See, Israel was, was taken out of bondage to be a light to the nations, but they failed. In Christ, now this true Israel, he will not fail. And he will be that light to the nations. That is why you and I are sitting here today. And so Christ, this deliverer, you may ask, what's he deliver us from? He delivers us from our sin. 
He delivers us from our bondage, our fear of death. Do you fear death? I hope you don't. But if you've not followed Christ, it is a thing to be fearful of because you will be separated from him for all eternity. But Christ is our great deliverer. And so this is the first connection that Matthew wants us to see, that Christ will deliver. Now, as we continue to scene two, the heading, if you will, of this scene is hope. Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is a reference to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. So Joseph, he's warned in this dream to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt and they escape just in time. And then Herod, because he's so paranoid and wicked, Jesus was probably around six months uh, in age at this time, but Herod, just to cover his basis, he, get, he bumps it up to two years and under. And all the baby boys in this town of Bethlehem and the surrounding area are killed. Just an awful situation. These families devastated by their young baby boys being murdered. And it's not hard to imagine the deep anguish and the cries that went out that day. And Matthew takes this sad and, and devastating event that surrounds the early life of Jesus, and he connects it to another very sad and dramatic event in the life of the nation of Israel. And this is when the people were exiled to Babylon. This exile took place around 600 years before Jesus was born. And so what takes place is the nation of Babylon, the world power at that time, comes to the city of Jerusalem, and they destroy it, they, they wipe it out. And then they take some of the young men, teenagers, young boys, and they lead them and their families to this town about five miles north of Jerusalem called Ramah. And it was at Ramah that these families were torn apart. The mothers with their young boys, their, their maybe teenage boys were, were ripped apart. They were taken to exile, never to be seen again. And the connection that Matthew is making is not just that they're being torn apart. He mentions Rachel. Why does he do that? Well, Rachel is, was the wife of Jacob. So Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Jacob and Rachel were married and Jacob loved her very much. And they had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. But what takes place with Rachel is that when she is giving birth to Benjamin, it's this very hard labor. And after she gives birth, she dies. And she is buried in this area of Rama. She is buried along this road that these boys going into exile were being carried. And so as these boys are going away, going to Babylon, as their mothers no doubt were running next to them as long as they could, just crying and weeping that they will never see their sons again. They say, where's the hope in this? But Jeremiah, he speaks in chapter 31, verse 15 of, of this weeping and this, this crying taking place. But it's so interesting, in the very next verse, there is hope. Because in verse 16 and 17 of Jeremiah chapter 31, we read this. 
This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. So Matthew is making this connection that in the midst of this devastating situation of the exile, that hope still remained. No doubt these mothers thought God was absent, that he wasn't there. But what Matthew wants us to see is that God is there. And so for you today, you may be struggling with this, that we live in this fallen, broken world. And just because we are are believers doesn't mean we're exempt from struggle and tragedy and just devastating situations in our own life. And we may question God in those times. Is he there? Is he present? And what Matthew is saying to us is yes. It may not always feel like it, but God continues to move and to work. And that is made most clear in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, because of his perfect life of obedience, goes to the cross. He dies for us. He is raised from the dead. And that not only gives us hope that we will be raised, but also that all things will be made new. In the last book of Revelation, it says there'll be no more weeping, no more tears. That Christ will wipe away our tears. It's because of what Matthew was saying. He provides us with hope that one day everything will be restored, everything will be made new. And you and I will live in that if we put our trust, our reliance, not on what we can do, but what on Christ has done for us. And so that is the hope that we are to live with today. Grasp on to that hope. In the midst of those difficult situations that you may be in right now, that you may face later this year, hold on to this hope. And so scene one, deliverance. Scene two is hope. But as we move to this last scene, our heading here takes a more negative tone because our heading here is the word despised. Read with me verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene. So Herod dies. Joseph is told to go back uh, to the, the, you know, where they came from. Most likely he was going to go back to uh, Bethlehem. But he's then uh, gets fearful. Herod the Great has died, but his son has taken over. He's just as wicked as his father. And so he's, he's told to go to another place. And so he goes to the small town of Nazareth. And what is interesting with this reference that Matthew gives us is that there's actually not a direct reference found in the Old Testament that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So later this afternoon, if you try to find it, you will not find it. It's not there. So what's Matthew doing? Is he just kind of making something up? Did he run out of references? Well, there's a couple clues to this. 
First of all, Matthew uses the plural prophets instead of prophet like he had done earlier. So what Matthew is most likely doing is not referring to a specific verse, but summarizing this broader theme found in the Old Testament prophets. He's pulling from multiple prophets. Second, this gets kind of deep. Matthew, he's a smart guy, right? He's making us work for it. This Hebrew word, nazir, means branch. The term branch in the Bible is significant because branch is speaking of the line of David. It's, it's talking about the Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ. And so this word, nazir, pointing to the branch, pointing then to Jesus. But also, we don't get this because we don't speak Hebrew. There's a play on words between this word, nazir, and Nazareth. But thirdly, and I think this is the key to understand what Matthew is doing, is that the word Nazarene was a slang word to describe an obscure place, an insignificant place. We actually find this in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, where uh, Philip, he goes to his friend, excuse me, Nathaniel, and he says, we found the Messiah. He says, we found the Messiah. It is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, he responds and he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is how those people thought at that time. And for Jesus to come from this small, insignificant town, they they just, they didn't get it. And so the point here is that this town of Nazareth was despised. The people that came from this area were looked down upon. They were insignificant. And the point that Matthew is making is that this is how so many viewed Jesus in his earthly ministry. And we're given insight into this in Isaiah in in chapter 53. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 53, speaking of Christ. He says, he, that's Jesus, grew up before him, that's God the Father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. It says he, this is Jesus, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Jesus was not attractive there would be nothing if we saw Jesus today to say, you know, I want to follow that guy. Jesus may have been actually ugly. We go on. He says, there's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He says he was despised. He was rejected by mankind. He's a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain. And like one whom people hid their face and at the cross, people hid their face from Jesus. They turned away. And Isaiah goes on, people held him in low esteem. And this is how Jesus was viewed by so many then. A nobody, insignificant, despised. But it doesn't just apply to people back then. This is people today. That Jesus is considered insignificant. He is despised. To claim that each of us is lost in our sin, separated from God from all eternity in a place called hell. And the way that we can receive salvation and be with God is through a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross and supposedly rose from the dead. I mean, come on, that's nonsense. People struggle. They say, don't call me a sinner. I have my own truth. I'll live my own way. And so when we hear, when they hear the the gospel message, it's despised. It's nonsense. It's considered insignificant. But the message of the gospel 
and why Christ came is what Matthew is showing us in chapter two. And so when we take this step back and we connect the dots, we see this beautiful picture of Christ that though Jesus often despised and considered insignificant is the savior that will bring deliverance, that he will deliver us from our sin. He will deliver us from the fear of death and that Jesus brings hope to a broken, hurting and chaotic world. Jesus is the only one that can do this. And this is what Matthew wants you to see. That as Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry in chapter three, and we get a more clear picture of him, he's laying this foundation that Christ brings hope, that he brings deliverance. But so many would despise him and think of him as so insignificant. So as we close, I want to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? If you're not a follower of Jesus, is he insignificant to you? Do you despise him? Now, it may not be that you're mocking and ridiculing Christ, but if you've not followed him, if you've not turned from your sin and put your faith in him, you are considering him insignificant. You're despising who he is and his work for you. But also as a follower of Jesus, which is most of us in this room, is he significant to you? And what I mean, are, are you living in such a way that you hold him up as our Lord and our Savior? Or are you going your own way? Are there sins in your life right now that you need to confess to him? But also, our world is so broken, just such a mess right now. Are you losing confidence in Christ? And Matthew would say to you, remember, though our world is broken right now, because of who Christ is and what he has done, hold on to that hope. He is with you today, and one day all things will be made new. He will renew all things. He will restore all things. This is the hope of the gospel brought to us through Christ Jesus. Would you please, please bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to give you a moment to respond you can do that at your seat or you can do it up front. Know that I'll be up front along with Jackie and, and Pastor Jack. And we would love to pray with you. But just a few questions. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And for those of us that are followers of him, are we truly living for him? If there are sin in your life, just kind of grieving your spirit, let go of it, confess it to him. Begin to follow him today. Heavenly Father, we, we love you, Lord. We thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture that we see of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the hope and the deliverance that he provides. Lord Jesus, help, help yourself, Lord, just to, to be more real, Lord, in our own eyes. Lord, that we grow in our, our faith and our love and our confidence in who you are and what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We lift you up. We praise you. We ask all in your name. Amen.